can't tell it by the human eye, but all of those who are gathered here today are made up of upwards of 60% water. That's your body. Over 70% of the heart that's pounding in your chest as I speak is water. Slightly north of 80% of your lungs, they're also water. And yet by this time Wednesday, if you don't take another drink of water, you'll be dead. Some of you have an amazing resilience, so you might make it to about Thursday morning. So it is with the human soul and with living water. Your soul cannot survive, in fact, cannot even come to life without the soul-quenching water of the life of Christ coursing through you by faith. Today's sermon is soaked in the prayer that you would plunge yourself into the regenerating, refreshing, soul-quenching fountain of Jesus and you would drink your fill. Today's sermon title on the worship guide, if you picked one up, uh, has been updated. It was Come to Me All Who Thirst, but it's been updated to Guzzle God. Drink deep. The sermon text is John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. I invite you to follow along or listen attentively to the word of the living God. John 7, verse 37. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Join me again as we ask for God's help. Oh, Father, would you do Isaiah 64 right here, right now? Would you unzip the floor of heaven? Would you rend the heavens and come down? Not in a little trickle or a light rain, but would you gush out the gospel on us so that none can hide from the flow of your agape love? And would you open, as it were, the mouths of our souls, as the psalmist said, open wide your mouth and I will fill it 
Lord, would you cause souls to gape open and guzzle down the goodness of Jesus? We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So that little passage finds us again where we've been all of chapter 7. That is, we're in Jerusalem, we're at the temple, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's the climactic moment. In fact, it's the reason John told us this whole chapter. Verses 37 to 44 break down into two parts. Your Bible may even present it in those two paragraphs. Verses 37 to 39, verses 40 to 44. And the main point of the sermon is, though it might be just a a, a catchy combination of words, that's not my intent only. The point of the passage, the point of the sermon is that you would guzzle God. That you would drink Jesus, as verse 38 says, by believing. That the straw you use would be faith. That your parched soul would be quenched by drinking from this plentiful ocean of the person of Christ and being immersed in the surging river of the Holy Spirit. You know, we had a prayer time just a moment ago. It lasted about 10 minutes. It was toward the beginning of this gathering. Do you know that some among us were not heard by God? I don't mean the voices that were audibly spoken. I hope that all of you were making a concerted effort to be prayerful during that brief moment for 10 minutes of your week to be gathered with an assembly to try to lift our voices cumulatively as it were amplifying our voices in the throne room causing our prayers to reverberate even more loudly in the throne room of heaven that's why we do congregational praying but do you know that some people were not heard that the proverbial prayers not going through the ceiling was, was actually happening? Do you know that if you are not born again, nothing you have ever prayed has ever reached the ear of God? Do you know that Isaiah 59 is in the Bible and it says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he cannot hear you. Jesus gives a glorious invitation to people who thought they knew God but had never truly met him. The two parts of the passage I mentioned are verses 37 to 39 and verses 40 to 44. And in the first part, verses 37 to 39, it's the Lord's invitation. And then in the second part, it's a dispute or disagreement and a division. The Lord's invitation in verses 37 to 39 is the main part of the passage. We'll spend almost all of our time there. So don't worry if the first point is, as is our custom, dragging on for quite some time. It's the main point. It has two parts, Jesus' invitation and John's explanation. You'll see in verse 37, 38, there's an invitation. You'll see in verse 39, there's an explanation. First, Jesus' invitation. What an invitation. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In this invitation from the Lord Jesus, come to me and drink, John gives us two parts, the when and the what. He tells us when it happened on the last day, the great day of the feast, and he tells us what the invitation is, 
come to me and drink. From inside of you, if you drink me, there will be a flowing tumult, a torrential raging river of living water coming out of you. So the wind and the what? Let's make sure we have the wind that John stamps this with. There's a time stamp, and it's so significant. It's at the beginning of verse 37. I almost put the verses on the, uh, the projection behind me and highlighted all the words that I'm going to try to lay emphasis on. I want you to see them. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that's the win of Jesus' invitation. That's John's timestamp. R.C. Sproul wrote, Imagine the scene. Great crowds gathered in Jerusalem for the sacred ceremony of the outpouring of the water by which the people remembered the water that came from the rock in the wilderness. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. So let me just refresh your memory. It's a week-long feast. It's seven or eight days. It's in Jerusalem. It's at the temple. We showed a brief video last week of what that temple may have looked like at the time of Jesus during this feast. And on the great day, on the last day, there was a special ceremony. Now, every day of that feast, there was a remembrance of God's kindness to Israel in the Old Testament when they wandered for 40 years in a desert, which typically doesn't have water. But somehow, a million and a half or two million souls didn't go more than three days without water and therefore die, just like you would do if you don't drink a drop of water between now and Wednesday. They didn't die because God gave them water. He also gave them manna and bread. So the Feast of Tabernacles existed principally to remember God's kindness of the bread and the water and to anticipate a messianic hope when he would feed and quench them with salvation. So imagine this scene. We're now on the great day. We're now on the last day. Try to picture this scene as I borrow from scholars to give you a picture in your mind of it. Seven days of the feast, a golden flagon, that's a big golden pitcher, was filled with water from the pool of Siloam, which was near the Temple Mount. It was carried, this golden pitcher, in a procession of throngs of people, particularly the priests, held by the high priest, and he would come back to the temple. There are thousands of people. I mean, jam-packed together. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court of the temple, there would have been a blast from the shofar. You've seen the horn. It was a trumpet that was used in the Old Testament. The Psalms speak of it repeatedly. It was a trumpet used on particular occasions, that is, joyful occasions, or the sound of a call to war. While the pilgrims watched, the priest processed around the altar with this golden pitcher. He would walk around it once a day, each of the first days of the feast, but on the seventh day, the people would walk around the altar following the priest with this pitcher seven times, hearkening back to the end of the wilderness wandering when Israel entered into, Jeru into uh, the promised land across the Jordan River, marched around Jericho seven times, the walls fell. That ended the need for water to flow from the rock because they were now in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
when the priest would go around the altar on the seventh day. Don't picture this in your mind. Hear it in your imagination. When the priest would walk around seven times in the temple, he's got his golden pitcher. The water came from the pool of Siloam. All the choir would be singing the Hallel. That's Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. They're singing the Psalter. The joyful noise is is reverberating from the temple. The shofar has been blown. When the choir reached the last of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118, every man, every male would shake the lulab, which is willow and myrtle twigs tied with palms. We're told that they did that from Leviticus 23. And the man would shake every man in his right hand while his left raised a piece of citrus fruit, which was a sign of the ingathering harvest. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall. It was after the summer. The harvest had just come. And so now they have this produce, and they're lifting it up to the Lord, and they're saying, God, you gave us this. You're the provider. We plant, we water, we pray, but you give the increase. That's the situation, but it goes further. Not only the citrus fruit in the left and the branches in the right, but all the men would cry out in unison the psalm that was projected on the screen earlier for us. Give thanks to the Lord over and over and over. Three times as the priest made his way for the seventh time around the altar give thanks to the Lord give thanks to the Lord give thanks to the Lord the water was then offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice along with the daily drink offering which would have been wine the wine and the water were poured out into the respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord these ceremonies at the feast of tabernacles D.A. Carson said were related to the Jewish thought both of the Lord's provision of the water in the desert and the Lord's pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the last days. That's why they did it. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles, Carson concluded, referred symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. Now, let's not be in suspense here. The Apostle Paul thought about those wilderness wanderings, thought about that water from the rock, thought about the great grace of God to give heaven's favorite, to die for our wretched souls so that we could be reunited to God so they could hear our prayers and we could fellowship with him forever. And Paul thought about the risen, resurrected, ascended, reigning, soon returning Lord Jesus and he just burst out into clear interpretation. The rock was Christ. Can you envision this scene? These people rejoicing before the Lord for what God had done in Israel's history. These thousands of people anticipating what God would soon do for them, they believed in the future, especially in view of their hope for a coming Messiah. That's when Jesus cried out on the last day, on the great day of the feast. But the main point of the passage is what he cried out. Again, if I were projecting on the screen behind me the way my New American Standard translation renders it, I would have highlighted, circled, underlined, bolded, italicized, put stars around, cried out. Do you see it in the passage? 
he cried out, saying, this is the what of his invitation? Come to me, all who thirst and drink. This is the whole reason Jesus went up to the feast. He was anticipating this moment on this day among these thousands when he would make a pulpit out of thin air and preach the everlasting love of God for hellbound sinners so that any, 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 any who would put the straw of their life into the ocean of his fullness would instantly be reconciled to the living God for time and eternity. These men are singing, give thanks to the Lord. The messianic hope in the air is so palpable you could cut it from the gathered throng with a knife. Thousands from Galilee, thousands from Jerusalem, thousands from the diaspora, the untold numbers of Jews that came into this moment from Gentile regions gathered in this temple, and Jesus stood up. And Jesus cried out, all who thirst come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, literally from his belly, from his deepest part, will flow rivers of living water. This is where I get the updated sermon title, Guzzle God, Drink, Drink. And if you're thirsty, I promise you, you will. If you've been made to see something of the manifold evil of your sin. If you have ever even so slightly been brought into the light of the holiness of God to know something truly of who he is and something accurately of who you are, you'll drink. You'll be like a parched man in the desert. You'll throw yourself into the oasis of the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't just sip, you will guzzle. So as we think of this text, those who are aware of earlier portions of the Gospel of John will quickly recall Jesus saying similar words to the woman at the well. Do you remember in John 4 verse 10? Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 10, 14, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It sounds so similar, and John wants us to think about that. Maybe you'll remember, if you're familiar with John's gospel, not only John 4, just three chapters earlier, but John 6, just one chapter earlier, where the Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And in our text, John 7, 37, come and drink. John 7, 38, whoever believes. John's connecting these themes again. Or maybe if you're acquainted with your New Testament and the other portions of the New Testament that John wrote, maybe your mind is already going to the end of the Bible, which was written by the same human author, John the Apostle, in Revelation 22.1, where we're told, then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. I believe that Carson, though, has John's 
intention right in relaying to us what Jesus said in this moment when he cried out, come drink anybody who's thirsty. I believe that John mainly had in mind the Old Testament. So many passages, a rich pattern dealing with water and spiritual blessing to be enjoyed by everyone who's united to the Lord by faith and the Old Testament is replete with this theme. If you're conversant with your Bible, maybe you're already thinking of places like Isaiah 58, 11, where this extraordinary promise of God's goodness to you is spoken. The Lord will continually guide you. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places. He will give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Because Jesus is connecting thirst-quenching water with himself. At the very moment, the priest likely, that very moment, is pouring from the pool of Siloam from his golden pitcher upon the altar. Many believe that what Jesus has in mind is the prophecy we just sang. Isaiah chapter 12. I appreciate the servants being willing to add it. I was meditating on this passage and just a few days ago said, God, can we put that one in there? The reason we sang Isaiah 12 is because this is highly likely what Jesus had in mind. Therefore, you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. And Isaiah 12, 3 Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. By the time of Jesus, many referred to the Feast of Tabernacles, not as the Feast of Tabernacles, but as the water drawing ceremony. And they did so because of Isaiah 12, 3. Our God promised us that there's coming a day when we can dip the little thimble of our life into the ocean of his fullness and we can just pull as much salvation out of him as we need. And there's so much fullness in him, John 1, that if we all receive him, there's still an overflowing supply for anybody else who comes. Isaiah 12 is likely in John and Jesus' mind in this moment. As we continue to expand our reach of the Old Testament, and try to grab the themes of water and the quenching of our thirst. What John is doing here in chapter 7, telling us what Jesus is crying out, come to me all who thirst, it just becomes more and more and more rich. If your Bible doesn't cause your heart to skip a beat when you start seeing Christological connections, I don't know what your faith is. Isaiah 44, 3 I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit. That's verse 39. On your offspring and my blessing on your descendant. John's saying, this is that. Isaiah 49, 10. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Not just a pool of water, an ever-flowing, never-ceasing stream. That's what John has in mind. If we turn from Isaiah to Ezekiel, the theme only becomes more replete and rich. 
connecting the metaphors of water to the realities of salvation, forgiveness, and the promised Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. This is a salvation passage. I will cleanse you from all your idols, all the stuff that you've been worshiping your whole life, primarily yourself. I'll set you free from that. I'll release you from the shackles and bondage of all your idolatry so that you can be free to join God in the much-making of God. Ezekiel goes on, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. This is clearly the same themes John's talking about. Ezekiel goes on, God speaking, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You know the whole reason they did the Feast of Tabernacles? God said so. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, do it. They thought they were keeping his statutes. And I'm here today to tell you in part, God never heard their prayer. They never honored him. Because there's only one avenue to God. His name is the way, the truth, and the life. Only through the Lord Jesus can you be rightly related to God. There's one way to God. There's many ways to Christ. But he's the one way to God. Ezekiel 47 carries this same exact theme. There's pictures in this chapter of a river of water flowing from the throne of God. And the more the prophet wades into this initial kind of ankle deep, knee deep trickle, then he's waist deep and he's chest deep. And then it's so, such a raging river flowing from the fullness of God right out of his throne room that the prophet can't even ford the river. And that river, Ezekiel tells us, is going to be for the healing of the nations. Guess who was at the Feast of the Tabernacles? People from everywhere. Time would fail me, and I would lose some of you more than I've already lost some of you. If I started speaking to you of Joel 3.18 and Amos 9.11-15 and Zechariah 13 verse 1, saying John had these themes totally in mind and Jesus is not ignorant of God's Old Testament promises, but I do got to take, take your mind to one Old Testament passage before I leave this rich, rich territory. It's Nehemiah. The people had been in exile. They'd been carried away in the north from Assyria and south from Babylon. They had done 70 years in servitude to a cruel master because of their own rebellion against God. And God in his mercy raises up a pagan king who writes a decree so they can go back to their land and rebuild their temple and their homes and their way of life. And those who returned under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra are gathered together in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we don't have time to walk through that whole chapter, but I'm going to summarize for you what happens. They obey Deuteronomy 31. When they come back from exile and they're brought to their senses and they realize that they have just been eating the chaff of this world for so long that they look totally indistinct from people who don't name God, Isaiah would say, we have become just like those over whom you never ruled. There's no difference between us 
and the pagans. And these people are brought to their senses and they come back to the promised land and they're rebuilding the temple and rebuilding their lives. And they're obeying Deuteronomy 31. This is what I mean. Deuteronomy 31 says, at the Feast of Booths, verse 10, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. So Ezra says, good idea, God. And part of the reason many churches today, which I think is a fine practice, I don't think it's a a, a regulative principle, if you will, but part of the reason, have you ever been to a congregation that says before a sermon, would everybody please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Been in a church like that? They do it because of Nehemiah 8, but they don't do it for about two minutes. Nehemiah 8, they did it for about 24 hours. We're told in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra opened the book, all the people stood up. And he read from it all day long. And he interpreted, they interpreted the book to give the sense of the meaning. They were preaching the scriptures to the people, the law of God. We're told that after a long exposition and reading of God's inspired word, we're told in Nehemiah 8, all the people worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I'd be a fan of returning to that. All the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. I'm not trying to do sentimentality, and I'm definitely not trying to guilt trip you, but I'm trying to wake you up. When's the last time you heard God's word read and Nehemiah 8 happened to you, you started weeping because you saw the gap between where you live and what God said? And you're not okay with it anymore. And you know you can't fix yourself. You need supernatural intervention to happen to you. Then Ezra said, Nehemiah 8, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. I mean, why are preachers in our day not having to say, okay, okay, okay. I understand you think your sin's so bad there's not enough mercy for you. I understand that you're fearful that you're about to slip into the pit of hell before I finish this sentence because your sin is bigger than anybody's you've ever imagined. But, but, but don't be too grieved. We're probably under a remedial judgment because in our day, we don't weep and wail and mourn and let our laughter be turned to mourning and cover ourselves with sackcloth because We don't need a giant-sized salvation because our sin doesn't feel so big. But these people felt it. And quote Nehemiah 8 again, all the people went away to eat and drink, send portions to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Now, I told you I wasn't going to preach all of Nehemiah 8 and 9, but let me tell you what they did in chapter 9. They did the Feast of Tabernacles. 8.15 tells us they went to get everybody They went out to the hills. They got olive branches and wild branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, tabernacles. And they told everybody, it's time to come back to Jerusalem because we got some business to do with our God. And this is what they prayed, not said, not sang, not talked to each other about. In unison, all the people who were gathered lifted their voices in prayer, and this is what they said. It's the only passage in the Old Testament where spirit and manna and water are combined. Do you want to know where the only other passage in the whole Bible where those three things are combined? John 7. This is what they prayed. 
You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. You told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna did not, you did not withhold from their mouth and you gave them water for their thirst. Spirit, manna, water, all three combined. Now, 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 remind me. When? On the last day, the great day of the feast. Where? Temple Feast of Tabernacles. Did Jesus say, is anybody thirsty? He didn't just say it. I know we've got our American inhibitions and sensibilities. I, 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 I pray that the third world relational non chronologically driven culture would descend on us again. So we would lose some of our inhibitions. We care too much what other people think about us. Jesus didn't care. He didn't say, is anybody thirsty? He cried out. Are you thirsty? All you tens of thousands of people who are gathered inside these temple courts and watching that priest pour his water out on this altar, are you parched? Are you spiritually dead? Are you hell-bound? He just said to them in the preceding paragraph, none of you can come where I'm going. You're all going to perish in hell forever. You can't come. Anybody thirsty? Is anybody sensible of your spiritual dehydration? Do you know that you've been living in a desert your whole life? In fact, the desert in which you live is drier than the Sahara your soul is parched. Do you know that you're spiritually cotton-mouthed? If you don't know that, it's because you're dead. It's because you're blind. It's not because there's not enough supply of water for you. God didn't trickle the gospel out of heaven. He gushed the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Come to me and drink. The reality is that the water your soul must have or you die is Jesus. This is why Paul says the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all that water that you're celebrating at your Feast of Tabernacles, his name is J-E-S-U-S. Celebrate him. That's why Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is why, as I read a moment ago, Isaiah 12, which doubtless Jesus has in mind. The themes are just too connected. Hear it again. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Salvation's a person. Come to me and drink. Get all the water you need from Jesus. You know what the next verse says? Isaiah 12, 4. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout all the earth. Cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's what Jesus is talking about. From your innermost being, it'll just flow out. 
because everybody, everybody who has tasted this water instantly knows this is intuitive. You don't have to have a theology class. You don't have to have a Bible study, Sunday school class. You don't have, any, have to have anything to know this other than for God to take up residence in your soul. Everybody who's tasted Jesus instantly knows there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in me. I'm the worst sinner I know. And there's more grace in Christ than there is people in this world. And that's why the very next verse, after you draw water from the spring of salvation, says you start making his deeds known among peoples. You make them remember that his name is exalted. You praise him in song. You tell everybody he's done excellent things. Things You let it be known throughout, quote, the whole earth, Isaiah 12. That's exactly what Jesus says would happen to people who drink. So that, friends, is Jesus' invitation to you right here, right now. If you're spiritually thirsty, you can get saved before I finish this sentence. And oh, how I pray you will. By plunging yourself into the plenty of the risen Jesus. So John explains Jesus' invitation. And John's explanation is he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't you just love when the Bible does this? Like, man, this is a tough verse. I'm not sure if I can see all these Old Testament connections. It might take me about 15 years to read the Old Testament carefully enough again to start seeing all that. Thank you, God, for saying, verse 39. This is John's explanation. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, I told you, Point one, Jesus' invitation and John's explanation is our main, main part of the sermon, so we're still under point one, but it's part two, John's explanation. What does this mean? For the Spirit was not yet given. Well, it does not at all mean that the Holy Spirit was not present in the Old Testament or in the lifetime of Jesus and his ministry or the apostles or the believers of that generation. The Holy Spirit appears frequently in the Old Testament and in John's gospel prior to this passage in the life of Jesus. So it does not at all mean that the Holy Spirit was not present. Anybody who was saved in the Old Testament was saved the exact same way that anybody in the New Testament or today is saved. Namely, their dead hearts are made alive by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That is to give life to dead, regeneration, their dead hearts were made alive, just like ours are, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit because they trusted in the Old Testament in the Messiah who was to come. They weren't saved by do-gooding and law-keeping. They were saved by hoping in the Redeemer God promised to sin, just like we're saved by looking back on that same Redeemer and his gospel work at the cross and the resurrection. In fact, Paul would say very clearly, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, he does not belong to him. So the Holy Spirit was alive and well from eternity and active in the Old Testament. So Jesus doesn't mean never had the Holy Spirit worked. Never had he been present. R.C. Sproul put it plainly, as it is today, so it was then. There was no regeneration in the Old Testament, no salvation apart from the operation and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what does he mean? I believe that John's referring, citing Jesus, explaining Jesus' words, to the anointing of the Holy Spirit for ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit upon all of God's children for service in his kingdom. 
This is so, so important. In fact, it helps us to examine our faith, as 2 Corinthians 13 tells us to do. You see, in the Old Testament, although every individual believer was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just like believers are today, only a select few in that epoch of redemptive history were anointed by the Spirit for powerful works of service in God's kingdom. So it's for this reason Old Testament saints would pray things that sound kind of strange to us who know about the preservation of the elect. They would pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And we're just like, duh, you need to come to Bible study next week. He never takes the Holy Spirit from you. What they meant was not salvation, but anointing for service, ministry in God's kingdom. So for example, in Numbers 11, Moses is worn out. All the people are bringing their complaints to Moses. So God says, get all the leaders together, and I'm going to take from my spirit on you. I'm going to distribute to them. And they all started prophesying. Well, Eldad and Medad weren't there for the distribution meeting. And Joshua finds out, oh, they weren't even here. And they're over in the camp prophesying. He comes back to Moses, starts complaining. Hey, they weren't over here. They're over there prophesying. And you know what Moses said? Numbers 11:29. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. That's what John's talking about. I was like, we need more people who are so full of the Holy Spirit, or 2 Corinthians 3 would say, so lorded over by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, what a verse. Now the Spirit is Lord, and where the Spirit is Lord, there's freedom. Is the Holy Spirit your Lord? That's what Moses is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's referring to in John 7, a new epic in redemptive history following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven in which the Father and Son would douse the kingdom of all saints, every single Christian, with a widespread, ubiquitous, kingdom-saturating, every single saint-anointing, priest-making, prophet-empowering, kingly-exercising, copious effusion of the Spirit of God for every single Christian. That's what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? In fact, you remember Peter just a few chapters after this? Cowering down in front of a slave girl, denying that he even knew of Jesus, let alone was one of his followers. And then about 50 days later, that same man who wouldn't even profess Jesus in front of a slave girl, literally the lowest on the societal spectrum, wouldn't even acknowledge that he knew Jesus in front of her, is 50 days later standing in front of thousands of people on the day of Pentecost telling them that if they don't have Jesus, they're going to perish in their sins. What changed? Two things. Peter met the risen Jesus, and right after that, he wanted to go tell everybody. But you know what Jesus said? Wait. Terry in Jerusalem. So 120 people, about this many people, got together in a room, and they prayed their heart out. Oh, God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for raising him from the dead. I'm imagining the kind of things I would pray if I just saw the risen Jesus 10 days before that and saw him for 40 days after he rose from the dead. What kind of things might I start praying? Oh, God. Jesus is the Messiah you've been talking about in all those pages of the Old Testament. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Jesus said, wait 
until you're clothed with power from on high. So the first thing that happened is they met the risen Jesus. But the second thing that happened is that the church was saturated in the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up and he starts announcing to everybody far and wide in their own language, which was the demonstration of the Spirit's power, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So dear brothers and sisters, here's what I want to say to you from John's explanation of Jesus' invitation. If you have come to the fountain of Christ, if you have put the straw of your life into the ocean of his supply, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus, as was quoted earlier, with all your heart, Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, risen from the dead, if your parched soul has been filled with the flowing streams of the fullness of Jesus and you have been cleansed with the fire of the Holy Spirit, then as R.C. Sproul wrote, you are an anointed person fit to be used of God for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. Now I just want to, I do good with reminders. Jesus is the master teacher. He said it, said it again, said it again. That's his method of teaching. So I want to remind you of something Tommy said a minute ago, right at the beginning of our service. Do you know one lost person? Do do you know anybody who's going to perish into a Christless eternity because they've not yet met Jesus? Are, Are you willing to get a little group of young people in your backyard and share Christ with them or throw open the top of your grill and put on some food so you can get some neighbors and just share Christ? I don't care what the mechanism is. But what Jesus is talking about in this passage is when you drink from the fill of Christ's supply, he injects you with the third person of the Trinity who's too big for you, and he starts to gush out, not in a little trickle, but like this raging river, a river of water, a stream of water that just produces eternal life. He he just opens your eyes, and you say, I think it's okay to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Do that. Lord, please give me opportunities. But you know what he'll do if you do that? He'll open your eyes to the opportunities that are always around you. May the Lord anoint us in a John 7, 39 way with the power of the Holy Spirit for ministry in the kingdom of Christ. Like these Old Testament individuals were anointed, Samson and David and on and on I could go for mighty works of power. Today, that looks like being an ambassador of the king. Now, I got to do a little confession at the end of this sermon. I often repent, and I I wonder if it's genuine repentance, from how many times I cower down from sharing the gospel. So I'll pray things like I just commended to you. Lord, open my eyes to the opportunities that are all around me. And then God in his grace will open my eyes to opportunities all around me. And oftentimes cower down. But this is one thing I can say has been consistent without exception. When I step out of the boat onto the waters of Jesus, you got to help me. And I open my mouth. I found the Proverbs to be true. The righteous are as bold as a lion. There's something that happens in gospel commending. I'm not talking about crotchety yelling at people. I'm talking about broken-hearted, 
I realize the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this person's going to die into an eternity of wrath if they don't have Jesus. That's why Rick would pray for 1.7 million people in northern Iran at the beginning of this service. And I found when I step out of that boat onto the firm waters of the faithfulness of Christ, he catches me. And then I go right back into my little cowering, you know, fearful me. But you know one other thing God uses to cultivate that courage? Not commending Christ alone. In context with a community of believers. Or hearing stories of, I was able to share the gospel with my coworker, Or I shared the gospel with my sibling or family member. Or you know the, all the categories. And God does something in me through that. Or not just hearing the stories, actually going together like Jesus sent them two by two. That was strategic because Jesus knows we're better together than we are apart. So friends, if you guzzle God, verse 37 and 38, your spiritual thirst will be quenched and the fountain of the Holy Spirit will so fill you and flow through you like a mighty rushing river to the world. But I want to tell you, he might give you, this is where we close, he might give you Isaiah's ministry. Now, I don't want to break our arm congratulating ourselves, patting ourselves on the back that nobody's believing our message and we're super faithful and nobody's believing. Maybe it's because we're just prideful and mean. <laughs> but there, are, there is a category biblically for faithful people like Isaiah you know his cry. God said, whom will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. You know what the next verse is? Great, go. Nobody's ever going to listen to you. And for the rest of the book, hardly anybody listened to his message. That's what happens in the rest of this passage. In verses 40 to 44, there's a lot of conjecture. Some people seem confident, but as the book unfolds, I don't think any of them are meant to be perceived as truly embracing Christ. In fact, when you get to the end of John's gospel, there's only one person at the cross with Jesus. One disciple had killed himself, so there's 11 left, and only John is standing there, the, the one who wrote this book. I, I don't know that any of these people truly believe, but some of them, you see the three different groups, verse 40, this is the, the crowd's speculation. Some of them said this is the prophet. What they meant was Deuteronomy 18:15 that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. They'd already asked in John 1, are you the prophet? Acts chapter three tells us very clearly, Jesus is that prophet. So some of them are wondering if he's the prophet. In verse 41, others, there's a different group, say he's the Christ. This is the Christ. And was it true, true faith? I, I don't know. But Acts 4.26 tells us very plainly, he is the Lord's Christ. And then some start to conjecture, it's in verse 41 in the middle, still others. So you've got others, others, others. There's just a lot of discussion about Jesus. And they say, no, 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 no. The, the Christ isn't going to come from Galilee. Don't you guys remember the scripture says, descendant of David from Bethlehem, that village where David was, that's verse 42. And incidentally, Micah 5.2 tells us that the Christ, the Messiah, must come from Bethlehem. That's exactly right. And 
lo and behold, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But then we're told at the end of the passage, 43 and 44, that a big division arose because of Jesus, and no one could arrest him. They couldn't lay hands on him. Divisions are still arising because of Jesus. He's bringing a sword between family, mother, child, sibling, sibling. Jesus said that would happen. Because some embrace him as Lord, and, and, and when you see him, you can't unsee him. And your fidelity to him sir, supersedes any other familial fidelity you have. He's still bringing divisions. And he's still uniting all those who have come to him by faith. And just like last week, we saw in, or two weeks ago, we saw in verse 30 that no one could lay hands on him. Here in verse 44, nobody touches him. Just like A.W. Pink said last week, they could no more arrest Jesus in this moment than they could stop the sun from shining. God wasn't finished with him yet. But six months later, not at the Feast of Tabernacles, but at the Feast of Passover, if you just keep reading John's Gospel, you're about to come into the whole reason he wrote the book. In chapter 18, he's going to tell us that 600 soldiers, 1812, and a Chiliarch, a commander who was in charge of 1,000, were up to about 1,600 people, plus officers of the Jews, 18.3, who were carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. So we're up to about 1,600, 1,800, maybe 2,000 people come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest one man. We're told in 19.1 that those people had handed him over to Pilate who had Jesus scourged, that is beaten with a whip so flogged that his upper torso from the shoulders down to below his waist would have been absolutely lacerated, blood flowing everywhere. We read in 1918, one little three-word phrase, they crucified him. They would lay hands on him eventually. When it was God's time, and the ultimate moment of God's time came when the Lord Jesus on that cross said three words, it is finished. And John tells us he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Nobody took his life from him. He laid his life down. We're told that he died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. John wants us to know that also a man who shows up in next week's sermon text, which Pastor Rick will be giving to us, Nicodemus goes to bury the corpse of Jesus, the cadaver of Christ. They slink his body over their shoulder. They march him down, wrap him in a cloth, lay him in a borrowed tomb. And in John 20 and verse 21, the climactic event of John's whole gospel, an indisputable reality. If you don't want to believe Jesus rose from the dead, it's because of willful ignorance. 500 people who were still alive at the time the Bible was written said they saw him. You could go ask any of them. The 11 men who were his followers minus Judas all gave their life for the fact that they believed Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't want to believe it, it's, it's willful ignorance. It's a spiritual blindness, but it's also willful ignorance. But the New Testament says when he was raised from the dead, Romans 6, 9, he would never die again. Acts 2, 24, he got up from the dead because, quote, it was impossible for him to be held by the power of death. Or Acts 26, 23, when he rose from the dead, he just beams light to the world. All the Jewish people, all the Gentiles, he's the light of the world. Anybody, anybody who wants water for their salvation can come to him. There is plenty. But in verse 40, some of the people, verse 41, others, 
Verse 41, still others. Verse 44, some of them. Verse 45, chief priests, Pharisees, officers. They don't want to believe. He's standing up at the Feast of Tabernacles, proving himself to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament portraits which that festival represented. Can you hear all these people rumbling? And are you gripped by the reality that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that bread and that water? Oh, that he is the fountain through whom the Holy Spirit flows into the life of verse 38, all who believe. Well, friends, because God alone can satisfy your soul, I don't think long sermons help. They, they, may, they may inadvertently harm. But we're so captured by this Jesus that for one hour a week, knowing that you're just getting deluged, you're getting flooded by all kind of antithesis to what I'm trying to say, that for about one hour a week, just want to do everything we can to get under us all, push us up. Let's go vertical. Because God alone can satisfy our souls, because God has done everything necessary to quench your soul's thirst by sending Jesus to save you, therefore, the most self-destructive evil thing anybody could do is turn to some other fountain than God to have the deep need of your soul quenched. I leave you with what God is saying in heaven right now to anybody who will not turn to Jesus. He's not saying it to us. Jeremiah says he's saying it to heaven. And the Lord is saying, be appalled, O heavens. Shudder, heaven. Be desolate, heaven, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two great evils. Number one, they have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and number two, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's a sermon being preached in heaven today. And it's astonishment that people made by God for God, for whom God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to win our redemption and His vicarious death in our stead and resurrection to prove that He can save forever. Anybody who comes to Him, heaven is saying, why do they keep turning to empty wells that have no water? Guzzle God, friends. This is the message of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I did pray that you would unzip the heavens and come down, that you would gush out gospel truth on us. I pray that that's happened, and I pray especially for what Jesus cried, that all here, whether already in Christ or never yet met him, that all will plunge ourselves into the enoughness of Jesus, and you would so fill and anoint us with the Holy Spirit that we prove ourselves to be captured by him to be quenched by him by telling others beggars where they can find bread and parched souls where they can find water. Fill this church to that end. Save souls, O God. Sanctify your people. Get glory in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.